Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. We are your hosts, retired Ambassador Harry K. Thomas, Jr., and I am Alex Morales, the chief. Harry, we're excited today. Who do we have today as our guest? We have our good friend, Monty Erfoff, who is a retired Marine and Army colonel who spent much of his career focusing on innovation and great power competition. He is currently a fellow at Yale's Jackson Institute and a consultant. Joining Monte is Ryan Oliver, who has over a decade of experience working with international consulting firms. Much of his focus is on Asia. He's a graduate of George Washington and Georgetown universities. Before we get on, Alex, we wanna thank our listeners from around the world, especially those in the United States, Zimbabwe, Ireland, Israel, China, Brazil, France, Netherlands, Korea, Cote d'Ivoire, Canada, and Kenya. As of today, we have a total of 1,210 listeners. Oh, that's great. That's great. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Welcome to the spotlight. Thank you for having you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Well, can you please uh, tell us about yourself, please? Monty, first, if you want. Sure. Sure. Uh, yeah, I've um, uh, recently uh, retired from U.S. SOCOM, where I was the chief of plans. Uh, before that, I was at uh, SOCCENT, where I was the J5 director. So I've got uh, a little bit of soft stink on me, and I've um, been pretty lucky to be able to do uh, strategy for the U.S. military for well over a decade and uh, a pretty wide breadth of experience. But uh, the questions that revolve around great power competition have definitely consumed a bunch of my uh, last years in, in my time in service. So I'm happy to be here and happy to be discussing it with you all today. Over to Ryan. Awesome. Ryan, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Over the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of time uh, both in the private sector and in the public sector, always with an orientation on international relations with a focus on China. And now, uh, increasingly over the last few years, the focus has really shifted to great power competition and the role of the U.S. within that landscape. Awesome. Harry? We just want to let you know that Special Operations Command is SOCOM. We are a no-acronym show because we want our <laughs> listeners around the world to understand. Uh, but on a serious note, uh, both Ryan and Monty, can you please define for our listeners what is great power competition? Sure, we'd love to, to talk about that, Harry. And then there's um, a couple different ways of looking at it, but um, I think I will cover some of the um, what international relations theory. Uh, we've kind of been delving into that a lot lately, but uh, it's a tough question, believe it or not. It should be pretty straightforward. But uh, the way Kenneth Waltz kind of envisioned it, um, it's a, like the international system is, in fact, a system. And within that system, the thing that, that uh, truly defines the unit of uh, measure is a state. And states have varying levels of power. And when certain levels get higher than others, you get conflict, typically. And uh, those who look across that uh, competitive place and find allegiance with others to kind of counterbalance that power uh, will do so. And usually they can uh, build up enough power to be a single power if it gets too much. So uh, great power competition is really that concept of uh, within the international system having two, at least two players that are much larger than others and they are using that power either to harm or help others depending on what they want. But in either case, everyone's looking at those big powers and worrying about how they're going to behave. So you see um, uh, that kind of play itself out over history and it's kind of a unique thing that uh, we forgot about it for a while and that it suddenly reemerged for us. It was always there. It never went away. Uh, the concept is pretty sound. It's, it's been around since Thucydides and probably before. Uh, there are some uh, ele- uh, a- er- eras of note, I would say. 
mostly, if you think, uh, I think for us in, in more recent history, World War One is that great example of of Germany's rise and the, the concern that others had about what what that would mean. France and Germany have been going back and forth for decades, uh, fighting each other out to be who, who, would, who would kind of control Europe. So you can see that it, it flared itself up and enough people aligned against each other and all it took was one thing. And the international system uh, invoked some of the institutional agreements, alliances, uh, to actually counter that power. So you see that played out over history. So its definition is really about an international system where each nation plays against the others using its elements of power to get their interests fulfilled. But I, I'll turn it over to Ryan to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, just quickly to add on, I think when you're talking about great power competition in the international system, I mean, it's really true of any system from the international system down to, uh, say, the neighborhood or the family unit where you have people, anyone, when they're in a system, you're going to have interests that you're looking out for. And when and power is how you pursue those interests. So if you're in a family, when the, if there's no higher authority figure, then everyone who's in that family is going to be looking out for their own and trying to mass power. Same with a neighborhood. And in the international system, there's no higher authority figure. There's no parental figure coming in saying, you get first dibs, you get set in some sort of order. So what you have is power massing in different ways. And when power distributes in such a way that there are two or more with a lot of power to impact those around them, that's when you start to have great power competition. And what makes it so challenging and interesting is that it has the potential to affect everyone on this planet. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's super interesting. I'm already involved. Guys, who do you think is the U.S. biggest competitor now that, you know, we're talking about great power competition and, and how, how we can compete? I'm happy to just start that. I, I, Brian's uh, going to be able to answer a little bit better, given his background. So obviously, it's China, and it's China by a long shot, right? So if you think about um, po power has multiple elements, and it shouldn't be confused uh, necessarily with other things. So power runs over th four core elements that we, you know, we have accepted, kind of generally speaking, in the United States, and I think others have done the same. So Those core elements of power revolve around military, economic, informational, and diplomatic means, right? So those, the means that you have are, in essence, something that you had in terms of natural resources that you were able to exploit and turn into multiple forms of power. So at this point, China uh, is without question um, uh, by far the greatest power across multiple uh, elements of power. And I'll, I'll leave it over to Ryan to kind of expand a little bit more on how China fits that mold. One thing, do you, do you think the development also is a power to consider? Development and economic power? Yeah, it, absolutely. So uh, it was one of the dime elements, you know, diplomatic, informational, military, and, and economic. Those powers each uh, manifest themselves from different resources within the nation, right? So if each unit of measure inside this international system is a state then what, what ability does that state have organically to it? And then what ability does it have to marshal those resources? So in the case of China, um, there's an economic advantage in economics just by sheer mass of people. Typically, they can produce more, right? So you have a greater economic power, which is those numbers. So uh, China, just by its sheer, sheer population, is at an advantage relative to others uh, economically. But I'm going to turn it over to Ryan to kind of talk about that a little more. Sure. Uh, and so simple answer is yes, China is the U.S. biggest competitor. But I think one other layer to this is that you have to look at this both on regional levels and then on the global level, because globally speaking, China is really the only country out there that comes close to competing with the U.S. at this point. When you look at the regional level, though, when the U.S. looks at its interests in, say, Europe or Northeast Asia or in the Middle East, There you have competitors like, for example, Russia in Europe or in Central Asia or Iran in the Middle East that are regionally oriented to compete with the U.S. in those specific contexts, but less capable of competing on the global stage. And so that creates this situation where China is the persistent, the enduring, the long-term challenge in terms of their competing vision for the world. But in other circumstances, you're going to see other competitors that come out and challenge U.S. interests. Thank you. Thank you for those answers. Uh, moving on, some people, prognosticators, are saying that the United States is losing its place and influence around the world. What are your thoughts about that? Are they correct? 
can the United States regain or have we not lost our influence around the world? Well, that's a good one, Harry. So um, this is Monty. Let me, let me take that one to start with. So um, in, influence is kind of a key factor. And if you think about um, an ability of a nation to do something with other countries, um, influence can run a lot of different directions. So the United States has an advantage, uh, and it has one in particular against China. But our advantage uh, for, for influence really runs the lines uh, across our ability to reach out and do things around the world. So militarily, there is no other expeditionary force that can match us. So we can be anywhere almost at any time. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have enough power, vast, to do things that you might want to, but you have the capability. So it does create a certain amount of influence, not just within the Western Hemisphere, which the United States is a hegemon and in this and the only hegemon probably in the world. We are the the hegemon of this area because we can reach out and touch anything at any time. We could beat anybody near us. So that's kind of the, the classical definition of it. If you think about China, they don't necessarily have that capability. So we have that military influence to be able to do that. Economically, as the world's largest GDP, obviously, if we show up, we're going to bring some economic mites to what we're doing. So it's interesting that uh, you know you, you have this rivalry with China because their ability to compete with us in a, in a capitalist sense is pretty strong. So we both come at this with um, an ability to show uh, power when we show up and want to talk to others. But the thing that makes our influence more unique than just about any other nation is that we've done a really good job of promoting uh, a, a, a non-zero-sum relationship. So it, we aren't simply seeking uh, mere domination. We're actually interested in free trade, of, like an exchange of ideas, open markets, these, these ideas are founded on, on a democracy and an idea that you know, the empowerment of people matter. And I think that message and that influence has waned because we haven't demonstrated ourselves to be the greatest of democracies and have, in fact, and I don't mean that just a, uh, you know, taking a swipe at our own system, but there are measurements and indexes that, that are, are watched and measured by outside sources that I've had the United States tumbling down the uh, Democratic index for a few years now. So as an example, we haven't done as good. And I think that that hurts our ability to influence others because it's quite a it's quite a powerful message for a very powerful nation that economically and militarily to show up and want to try and deal with you fairly. That that is an unusual stance for great power to take. And I think it's attractive. So our ability to attract others to the, the U.S. brand really matters uh, in terms of what we want to sell. So if we're just going to show up and push people around, uh, they may not want to hear that, which decreases our influence. And if we're uh, looking for unequal exchange economically, clearly that's going to reduce our influence. So um, while we may, I think all nations have to take real politic as, a, as, as something that runs their operations in the world, but at a minimum, you have to rhetorically talk about the rights of others. If you can show up and actually mean it, that changes that discourse. So it's really important uh, to not get ensconced in messages like America First because you lose that uh, moral authority when you step in and try and negotiate with other countries or if you're just trying to maintain a particular relationship with them and they think that you're just in it for yourself. Obviously, it's difficult to keep get or maintain a relationship with somebody if they think you don't give a damn about them. So uh, I think that one of America's great strengths has been, you know, we haven't always been perfect and we, we have done it badly from time to time, but uh, more often than not, we have tried to develop institutions and create relationships and long-term alliances and partnerships with people in a way that maximizes influence because you can be there or you're a trusted agent uh, and they'll want to go with you. Uh, an interesting um, theory inside of uh, the realist school in international relations is that um, if you have two big powers and you're, you're wondering to yourself which side to go with, the one that's less threatening is the one that you probably will go with. So if the United States takes a stance where it wants to appear more threatening to everyone, we will actually lose 
friends, partners, and allies because we will, we will become more of a threat than a help. And I think that calculus has to be uh, something that our State Department and, and other governmental agencies are going to have to take pretty seriously as we try and engage the world uh, in a way that uh, I think brings some influence back because I'm, I think we would all agree that it has declined somewhat over the last few years. And when Alliance and Partner will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more. We'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back. And we were talking about alliances and partnership. And Ryan, can you please uh, elaborate a little bit more? about what Monty was talking about, please? Sure, Alex. I think something that often gets taken for granted nowadays is the fact that since World War II to some degree, and certainly since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has really underwritten international security in a number of key regions, uh, whether you're talking about Northeast Asia or Europe, but our, our military presence, our investment in building up those regions has really helped to provide stability and prevent the outbreak of major conflict. And so in a lot of respects, when you look at the exceptional development pace by China, which their leadership and their, their system of government um, definitely played a part in, in elevating millions and millions of people out of poverty, no doubt about it. But the U.S. created the conditions external to China that allowed for that development to take place, created the, the regional stability largely in Northeast Asia. And when you look at the progress made in different parts of the world during that time, our system of alliances and our investment in development and our commitment to international rules and norms really helped to create conditions that allowed countries to focus more on bettering the conditions of life for their people than on competing with their neighbors next door. So I think that's something that when we talk about U.S. influence in the world, you know, you look over the last five years, really, and, and yes, our, our system of alliances and international institutions is a, a little bit more weathered and beaten after, uh, after the last five years. But I think that it, it still the, the structure of it remains intact. And I think with a little bit of love and a little bit of investment in the time to come, it'll be easy enough to revitalize that and rebuild the trust and the relationships that help to underwrite 
a lot of that security in those key regions of the world that helped to enable development, that helped to bring people out of poverty, and that helped to create better lives for millions of people around the world. When you look at China and the way that China engages with the world, no doubt about it, China has immense resources to leverage in order to exert influence. Uh, China is the first country to come along in decades that offers an alternative system of governance, an alternative ideology to the U.S. And with that, they're, they're signing checks. They are bringing in roads and ports and uh, extractive industries and factories. And then they, they are bringing in workers, too. Um, but they are exerting their influence in lots of different ways. I think what's interesting about how the Chinese are operating strategically is that they're very opportunistic. So they, they look when, when a, a window opens, they just flood right in. And so they recognize, for example, that at the United Nations General Assembly, every country has a vote, one vote. And it doesn't matter if you're the tiniest country on earth or the, the, the largest, but everyone has a vote. And so they recognize that and they work that system. And if you look at other areas where the U.S. is ceded ground, the Chinese are finding ways to create roles for themselves in providing economic support or providing diplomatic support or otherwise injecting themselves into those situations. And so I think recognizing that where we create opportunities for Chinese advancement, they will likely be taken. Um, the U.S. needs to be more circumspect with how they how we uh, engage with the world and how we revitalize an alliance infrastructure and how we look at those international institutions and, and, and fill them with legitimacy by investing in them in terms of energy and in terms of finances. Wow, actually, you mentioned so much that that is a segue to the next question, because I always talk about, you know, the way our, our foreign engagement is, is based or is perceived. We might not intend to do it this way, but we always talk about, you know, when we go and and talk to our partners or our allies, we always talk to them like we are bigger than them. And we don't talk, you know what I'm saying? We we talk to them like they're like our like little brother. You got to listen right. to me. And I'm always criticized that, you know, and say, hey, uh, why don't we to talk at them, not to them, you know? And well, my question is, do you think that our foreign approach is a good one? And if so, I mean, it could be yes or no, uh, or if so, what do you think we should do about that? Monty? <laughs> or Actually, Ryan, let's let Ryan go first. Or? Yeah, sure, guys. Um, so I think when you're asking, is our foreign approach a good one? You have to ask, what is a good foreign approach? And so I think that ultimately that starts with focusing on What are, national, what are the U.S. national interests? And so uh, Dr. Terry Dibel, a longtime professor at the National War College, broke down national interests in four general categories, physical security, economic prosperity, values preservation at home, and values projection abroad. And no matter what nation on earth you are, you're likely going to have some combination of those things as your national interest. Now, the U.S. coming out of the Cold War During the Cold War, our national interests were largely defined by whatever the Soviet Union's about, we're against that. It was very, um, our, our adversary helped us to define who we were and how we engaged with the world. And coming out of the Cold War, I think there was, we, we found ourselves with a, an unprecedented amount of power to operate in, in a, an uncontested international space. And so we really um, had a difficult time, it seems, narrowing down what we cared about in the world and how we chose to operate in the world. 9-11 came along and provided us with some direction in the sense of counterterrorism. And in a lot of ways, it serves as, as a distraction while competitors and adversaries husbanded strength and, and built up their, their capabilities in the background. And so I think now we find ourselves at another inflection point. And I think Secretary of Defense Mattis pointed this out appropriately in his national defense strategy in 2017, that really the realities of great power competition, while they never left us, they're certainly back in focus now. And so when you talk about whether our foreign approach is a good one or not, I think a good foreign approach for the United States now has to start with our national interests and has to start with how we view the pursuit of those national interests in, in, a world, in the world context. And so when you look at the alliance structure we were talking about or the international institutions we were talking about, over the last five years, our leadership brought the value of those institutions into question time and time again. And 
we shouldn't participate in institutions just for the sake of participating in them. But if we determine that those institutions, that participation in those institutions, that they serve U.S. interests, then we should invest in them and we should revitalize them and we should find ways to help improve our the, the American condition in the world um, through those institutions. I believe that both the U.S. and its allies and partners and the world more holistically is better off by investing in those institutions in very in specific ways. And I think that if you focus on U.S. interests and you focus on a responsible role for the U.S. in the world with that massive power that we enjoy, you'll find that a, a good foreign approach almost flows naturally from that, that it, it almost starts to write itself once you focus on what's important. Monty, you want to add something? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm going to take it. I totally agree with obviously what Ryan was saying. And, and I just want to take just maybe a little different uh, perspective from it. And if we, if, if you think about the historical aspects of what great powers do, uh, they can only hold on to power for so long. So, how you hold on to power matters. So your foreign uh, affairs and your foreign policy, they, they matter. But they're predicated on certain things. And we kind of talked about values and, and how you see things. But uh, leadership is also part of it. And there's a great example uh, of a great power in Rome. So when you think about ancient Rome and how long they were able to maintain uh, power, they did a pretty good job, and that took, uh, you know, some, there was some uneven leadership. They, they had a system that worked pretty good as a republic uh, because they were very leery of their own internal power system, and they didn't want anyone to get too much. But as soon as they abandoned that with the Caesars, they expanded, but they were sowing the seeds for their own destruction, right? So as you get uh, over a 200-year period into about 190 AD, you get to Marcus Aurelius, they still go on for another couple hundred years. But as soon as you end the reign of Marcus Aurelius, it's a downhill slide because it's, they are constantly killing each other, fighting each other internally. The mechanisms that, that, that are supposed to propagate and hold up and, and keep Rome going begin to crumble. And just because there wasn't anyone big enough to knock them off, uh, they didn't get knocked off for a while. They split and then you have the Eastern Empire, but the Western Empire falls because of its own internal devices just didn't work. They literally killed each other trying to get power. So when I look at the United States system, the question of our own foreign affairs is, a, is I think it's kind of a basket case sometimes because of our own internal division. So our internal division doesn't give us a clear system of thinking about what really matters. And I think what Ryan was talking about with those four elements is the vision of how you see yourself, aside from partisanship, 10 years from now. So if you think about the United States, it needs to defend itself and not, and not perish from the earth, right? We need to be able to maintain prosperity because it's the lifeblood of who we think we are and the lifestyle that we want to maintain. And our value protection at home, our own democracy, obviously we've had a lot of conflict with that. But that's a critical thing that supports and sustains who we have been as a united people for a very long time. And then they have value projection abroad. If there isn't wide scale agreement on, on what that looks like and what it ought to be, those ends, then our choice for ways and means to achieve those ends are going to be somewhat convoluted and probably not add up to things that are healthy for what we want or will hinder us from achieving those things that we want in the world. So I think in an inability to consistently hold on to values and recognize what's good for the greater good of America is probably good for the greater good of other people. And that maintaining that kind of values base as we look out to our foreign policy uh, without a lot of uh, partisan bickering and, and, and clamoring for power inside our system uh, is, is truly detrimental to what we want to achieve as a nation. If that could be corrected, I think our foreign policy, if it went back to its more meaningful roots, would be far more effective. But I don't believe it's effective right now because there is unity inside the United States with a vision to how to achieve it, what you should do it, where you should do it, or why you should do it. And just to tack on quickly there, I, you know, on the point of internal divisions in the United States, one of the, the key challenges that we're facing right now is the fact that China's advancing this alternate vision for how countries should uh, lead their people, how 
how countries should interact in the world. And I think the U.S. has such a compelling vision to advance. It has such a compelling product to sell. And right now, um, the ugliness that we're experiencing at home and the divisions and the fact that, you know, it, it looks like that there may be some interference from outside exacerbating some of those issues. But bottom line is the degree to which we can come together as a nation and capitalize on our strengths, our diversity, our resilient institutions, our our systems of democratic representation, the degree to which we can invest in those and build faith back in those public institutions will help us in our foreign approach because it will help others to see the, the value of our product and the validity of our vision for the world, particularly in contrast with a more authoritarian, more technology-enabled uh, system of governance advanced by the Chinese, which, which may appeal to some autocrats in different parts of the world, but does not necessarily appeal to the people. And so when you look at the way the power has shifted in the 21st century, it has shifted down and out. And people are more empowered today than they ever have been before through the proliferation of technology and communication technology as well. And so I think if the U.S. is going to be a betting nation and bet on its vision, it will find that the people of the world more often than not are on its side. And we have a good product to sell if only we can get it right and get it out there to the world. We just need to find a way to get our house in order and, uh, and communicate it effectively. That was wonderful. I would like to just to interject to follow up on that before our break. Um, we're going to have a new SECDEF, a new Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. If you were able to advise him or her, uh, both of you, what would be your thoughts? Well, that, that's a tough one. So from a military um, policy perspective, obviously national security being our number one um, uh, concern, is that you've got to defend the nation. And to do that, I mean, there's a very time-honored tradition on how you do it. And we've said it a few times here, but it, and it's pretty obvious, but it, the ability to align with others is probably your greatest strength. The fact that um, you can capitalize on others' strengths matters. And one of the things that's problematic for you is if you try and shift off that a little bit is, the disunity it causes from a military perspective. So um, it's already hard because if you're a, you know, a German army, you have your own communication systems, you have you know your own vehicles, the way types of gas, uh, your own way of transporting people. Same thing goes for England. Same thing goes for France. Thing same thing goes for South Korea, Japan. Like that ability for us to kind of lead an alliance like that gives us an ability to cross deck or make similar all these systems so that we can talk together so that we can fight together, that we can communicate together when we have to it by developing co-developed systems and agreeing on it and then practicing together. It adds an incredible amount of military might to what the United States already has. So, uh, you know, secretary uh, Mattis just released a a really good article on this. And I, and I think he's, he's just absolutely right. The thing that the the next Secretary of Defense is going to have to really focus on is ensuring the strength, uh, the the ties are strengthened between those alliances. And that that isn't just, you know, drinking some tea together or slapping each other on the back. It's that hard work of making decisions about procurement and future systems. Hold that top. Hold that top there. We'll be right back and then we'll pick it up. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back. Please, Monty, continue. Sure. Thanks, Alex. So, um... Strengthening those ties militarily means a lot of things, and, and those systems are part of it, but there's also a familiarity and a trust. So if you've ever been in the military or on a football team or you know diving team, what, whatever it happens to be, where there's a, a team effort for things, there's no way you can just show up and work well together, or if you do, it's just luck. So professionals need to work together to develop those, those strengthened ties of trust and understanding. Uh, and, you know, without those things, those communication systems and trust and personal relationships, you, you just can't go that far. So um, it, it's just impossible to underscore the need to develop those alliance systems, but it, it really is far more than just, you know, having friends. So we, we couch it in those terms just in, in, in you know, our casual conversations, but it's way more complex than that, and it's way more important than it might seem on the safe, on the surface. I think, you know, there were – there's – uh, in, in going back to the international relations theory, I mean, the, if you think about great powers, one of the problems that they have is uh, free riders, right? So people that are just going to ride on your strengths. And, you know, maybe the Europeans have done that from time to time, but I think more often than not, they haven't. And uh, the, the, the ties that we've built, especially with the Europeans through NATO, uh, are extremely deep, but they, they're tenuous, right? I mean, things get uh, weak. Skills decline. You have to exercise those things. You have to keep pushing forward. There are new weapon systems. There are new ideas and ways of fighting together that you just you, you can't let atrophy or you lose the power that you had when you were more united. So I, what I'd like to do is save some time for Ryan because it's a pretty big question. I appreciate that. And I, I think just to kind of build on that, when I think of what the three areas of focus should be for the, the incoming leadership at the Pentagon, it really boils down to just three broad bucket points. One, defend the homeland, first and always. And so what does that mean? The most dangerous course of action in terms of the security realm for the United States is a weapon of mass destruction, whether a nuclear device, biological or nerve agent employed on the homeland. And so invest in coastal defenses, pathway defeat, and port security, and things like that that help to make sure to mitigate the risk of that most dangerous course of action. The second bucket would be ensuring favorable regional balances of power. And what I mean by that is the U.S.'s footprint in different parts of the world and its alliance structure and its relationships and partnerships around the world has helped to maintain favorable regional balances of power and and help to support stability and economic prosperity across the world for much of the last half century. And so finding ways to upgrade those systems so that they account for modern realities and shifting power dynamics will be critical in order to preserve our physical security and our economic prosperity. So finding ways to work with our allies and partners to ensure favorable regional balances of power. And then finally, we need a resilient force. And so there's been a lot of talk about having a a force that's ready to fight in a high-tech 
integrated environment. And we have to do that because technology is pushing us in that direction. The way of the world is going high tech. And so maintaining technological advantage, particularly in terms of mitigating threat is hugely important. But at the same time, resilience demands that we prepare for a low tech environment as well because of denial capabilities that are out there. And so being prepared for the high tech fight, but also being prepared to transition to a low tech situation where distributed autonomy is exercised by our forces really is essential to maintaining a resilient and ready force. And so by focusing on defense of the homeland, ensuring regional balances of power and a resilient force for high tech and low tech situations, I think our Pentagon leadership will best put us in a, it will put the U.S. in the best position to navigate the time ahead. But beyond that, I think when you talk about the NDS or the, the national defense side of things, you also have to talk about the broader where that fits in the broader use of tools of statecraft. And so the Department of Defense and the military tool of statecraft needs to primarily be a supporting effort to a diplomatic effort. And so revitalizing the State Department isn't just a diplomatic initiative, it is something that is a defensive imperative. Um, And so finding ways to revitalize other tools of statecraft in ways that work and complement with one another and that provide civilian-led options for competing in peacetime environments is absolutely critical. And the military is going to be there and the Department of Defense is going to be there to provide a supporting role and to help set conditions for competition. But without that, the military can't continue carrying all this weight that it's been carrying for the last several decades. And it's not its role either. So making sure that there's not scope creep for what the military is being asked to do and focus on other tools of statecraft, revitalizing those, those tools and employing them in a comprehensive strategy with the military tool of statecraft, then we're talking about an effective approach to the U.S. on the global stage. Wow. So in other words, if, you, if you're fighting, you kind of lose because you haven't applied the other ones, <laughs> right? You, you ain't wrong, you Alex. You can't you can kill your way to win in a way. All right. Awesome. <laughs> so transitioning, we saw your work that you are doing with Yale University. Can you please talk about a little bit about that work? Sure. Um, I feel pretty lucky to have been there. Uh, I got to be a Yale fellow for one semester, bringing some ideas that I had learned uh, at uh, Special Operations Command. Um, As we looked at uh, Secretary Mattis's 2018 National Defense Strategy and the 2017 National Security Strategy, we had to develop plans uh, in response to those. And it forced a lot of tough questions that we just hadn't considered for a very long time, mostly because we've been doing this counter-terror thing for so long, like 20 years, like the thought of having to go and, and do something about a, another nation kind of blew our minds a little bit. So we had to stop and really think and research and, and come back at the problem in a, in a way uh, that was almost new and fresh. So uh, we struggled with some things and, and we worked a lot of stuff out, but I saw some opportunity to to take a different, more academic approach to uh, solving or, or at least seeing uh, the problems that we have. Because, you know, from a military perspective, I mean, you think about, you know, China's, I think it has more diplomatic, um, like, embassies and consulates than any other nation. Or if, it, if it's not number one, it's number two or three. It's, it's really high up there. Uh, they've got economic ties that are capitalistic all over the world. We're capitalists, they're capitalists, and we're all doing business. That's great. Uh, they're not exactly a military power that's going to be expeditionary anytime soon. So when you start talking about, like, this great power competition, just exactly what do you mean? And where where should we do something? Why should we do something? So there's kind of bigger questions about uh, what that means. Uh, should make you think about, you know, different things. One of, one of the things is... Uh, how do you not fight? You know, that's a big question. Like, do we have to go to war? No, you know, we don't have to. So uh, it would, can you still get what you want and not fight? That's kind of a big question. So when great powers go to war, you know, like a lot more than lives and and money can be lost. So uh, our standing in the world could be without question reduced if we got into that kind of war. So there's probably very few scenarios where, some large scale fight in the not too distant future would be a payoff, right? So finding ways to cooperate and then just compete, you know, uh, is pretty important. 
And when you think about that kind of stuff, um, you need to know about like where you should compete and why and what, what, where it matters. So um, what I wanted to do with Yale was to be able to um, work with young students that had been working in global affairs for a while and uh, build a model uh, of, the, of the world so we could kind of see like what, what, what's, what's going on. So the model was, was really about uh, can you take what they call in international theory uh, a black box system? So instead of looking at everybody's history and, and their, their leaders and the way that they position themselves, just take uh, variables that will measure things like economic and military power, uh, ways of kind of uh, looking at people's uh, or nation's intents, uh, their influence in the world, those kind of things. So building those measures in and just seeing it more from uh, a, um, a numbers-based system instead of looking at personalities and history and all that. So what it did was it gave us an ability to see a couple different things. So you could, you could rank every country, that, and we only looked at three basic areas. We looked at the Pacific, we looked at Europe, and we looked at the Middle East. But the way we did it, um, we measured economic and, and military power together along with the, uh, it had an element of uh, governance in there. And um, you could rack and stack that, right? So one to one to we had ninety countries. So one to you know, ninety. At the top, you had no surprises. Now you start adding in these other variables that we had, like okay, how do they line up with intent? What, who can they influence? And then we did another set of uh, indices that were about their alignment to the United States. So uh, the, the interesting thing that we found is that you could develop a system where you could show somebody who's powerful and influential, but not aligned to China or to the United States by their actions, how they vote in the UN, that kind of stuff. So we were able to, to see the world in a way that was um, numbers-based. And then you could take that and do some analysis, some qualitative, not quantitative analysis, and wed those two together and say, hey, these are smart places for uh, U.S. military to do things. And that didn't necessarily mean uh, something, you know, kinetic. It, it could easily be just make friends with these people, spend time with them, get to know them. That, that access placement and influence part of, uh, of our military's you know, mission. So the special operational forces are much better at that than most because – a lot of times they can go into countries where there's not problems happening at present, a non-war zone kind of thing, and they can work in the embassy in a very low footprint and work with an embassy team to, 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 to make friends, right, and to set up training and do other things that can make us a more cooperative and effective team if we had to do something together. So when we looked at uh, SOF's capabilities, we could see that uh, there was a couple core countries that, you know, we SOF could be, uh, special operation forces could be, uh, particularly influential. So uh, we we tried doing that, you know, at SOCOM, and, you know, we came up with other ways of doing it, but I found that this was way more effective to use this kind of quantitative, qualitative process to, to analyze and make clear uh, where it was that we could actually invest in competition that would bring you the most bang for the buck. So uh, at the end of the day, we came up with um, – Four countries in particular that we thought would be pretty important. And um, to me, the most interesting one was India. So obviously, um, if India's on the side with the United States partnered in some way or even a, an ally, we could together um, probably wield a great deal of power in the world for good, right? World's largest democracy and the world's oldest democracy get together and hopefully make good <laughs> with everybody else. Now, special operational forces aren't the ones who are going to make all that happen. They can only support that mission. So um, we, we found tailored ways to align and help them uh, operate a little bit more, uh, uh, more effectively in their own region. Thank you for that. Having served in India, I find that fascinating. <clears throat> uh, Ryan, do you think this model could be applied to other nations? Well, Ambassador, I think fundamentally what you're talking about is capturing a snapshot in the world in a way that is validated by data. Um, it's not complete, it's not exhaustive, but it's representative of the world in a different way than we know to understand it more generally. And so I think it's, it's one tool in the toolkit. And I think that no matter what nation you are, 
you could benefit from uh, either a self-assessment or assessment of the world around you. I think the U.S. looking at the its its own metrics and its own position in the world that helps to reveal both its strengths and its weaknesses um, in absolute terms and also in relative terms to the world around it. And so I think taking a hard look at um, you know a nation's condition in the world and also their position relative to others is, is always going to be a helpful exercise in understanding where they fit. It can really help to, and for a country like the U.S. with immense resources to apply in its, in its foreign policy endeavors, uh, I think it really helps to validate or to pressure test some of the assumptions and some of the directives that might otherwise guide us in, in ways that are amiss. Well, uh, we're about to be ending uh, the podcast, but just in a short, uh, what is the goal for the project, Monty? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, obviously for all the kids to get an A, so, which they did. So, so uh, you know, mission accomplished. Um, and, but uh, what I would love to see is, um, uh, is this actually get out there and be used more. So uh, I'm actually doing some work uh, in the private industry to expand this study and to take it to the next level. I think it has a lot of application well beyond the military, uh, you know, diplomatic, economic. All, there's a wide audience for this. And I think there's a great need to just have a better understanding where you can wed quantitative, qualitative data together. So hopefully we can get something like uh, the Yale study published. And uh, if not that one, then the next evolution of it. Uh, love to see it at a political science conference. Love to get it in an academic journal. Uh, would, would love to have a discussion with policymakers and help them see another way of seeing the world. That might be a little less convoluted and more straightforward than the, what they may have seen elsewhere. And with that, we thank you, Colonel Retired Monty Erfo and Mr. Ryan Oliver to be in the spotlight. We could do this for the continue of the day because this is super interesting. We appreciate your time. Thank you for your service. And once again, thank you to be in the spotlight. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again next week.